Let's seek God's face together again in prayer. Let's look to the Lord for his help in the word today. Let's all pray. Eternal God, under our Father in heaven, we come again in Christ's name. We're thankful for one who is our great captain, our great prophet, our great high priest. We thank you for our Lord who conquered hell and death in his triumphant work upon the cross. We thank you, Lord, that though he hung upon that tree and was buried in the grave, yet he rose again the third day triumphant o'er the grave. We thank you again, O Lord, for a risen Savior. We remember that, O God, on this first day of the week, on the Lord's day, we do rejoice again in the triumphant work of our Savior. He is not dead, he is alive. And grant us the grace, O Lord, today to give our hearts and our minds every aspect of our affection, to give it to Christ Jesus, to proclaim him who is worthy of all of our honor and all of our adoration. And so encourage our hearts around the word today. Bless us as we come to receive the elements. May we, oh God, take them by faith and receive Christ afresh again, brought to us in the word and in the elements in such a manner that our souls will be strengthened and our faith edified that we be blessed in our souls today. Oh Lord, remember those who can't be here. Remember those who are laid aside in sickness and other infirmities and find themselves away from the house of God today. Bless them, O oh God. For those who can watch on and join in via the webcast, may the word of God nourish their souls also. And may we indeed delight in thee today. May the gospel bring much joy to your souls as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So please hear your Bibles again. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 53. We're uh, continuing our studies in this portion of God's Word. We've been taking our time, making our way through uh, these verses, section by section, over the last year or so. And our text today is verse number 9. Isaiah 53 and the verse number 9. I'm going to read that text, and then we'll actually take some time to come back and look through the previous verses also to lead to the text. But verse number 9 says this, Isaiah 53, verse 9, And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Amen. This is the word of God. Now, Isaiah 53 is full of some of the most glorious gospel texts. And so often the case is that you, you take one sentence or question, you pull it out, and you take some time to consider that particular sentence. But we shouldn't miss the point that there is a tremendous, if you like, continuity of thought and logical sequence in the order of these verses. If you take some time to go back to verse number one and consider it, you will see that what's mentioned there is that the good news of the Redeemer is largely rejected. In the previous portion, there was the encouragement of good news, good news of salvation and redemption. There was the promise of a servant who will deal prudently, verse 13, one who will indeed sprinkle many nations, one who will see great things accomplished and be exalted, extolled, and very high. And yet when you get to verse 1 of chapter 53, you see, well, actually, when he comes, there is widespread rejection. Romans 10, John 12 use this text to illustrate the rejection of the Jews in Christ's own time on this earth. He was despised and rejected. Who hath believed or report is used as an indication of rejection. 
And of course, the reason, verse number two, is because he hath no form nor comeliness. When we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Uh, At least part of the reason for the rejection of Christ was that there was nothing in his human form to cause men to look at him and believe him. And so verse number two gives some explanation as to the reason and the rationale for the rejection. In fact, that rejection was such that he was despised and rejected of men, verse number three. And those who saw him, they esteemed him smitten of God's. Again, that's a testimony of those who rejected the Lord. They see him upon the cross and they esteem him one who is dying under the curse of God, hanging upon a tree as he did. He was one, as they saw it, dying under this pleasure of God. And that is because they did not understand that he was not dying for his own sins. He was dying as the sin bearer. Verse 8, surely he had borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Verse number uh, 6, the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so we're seeing here the, really the explanation of God for what's happening in point in time as Christ died upon the cross. From man's perspective, here is one dying under the curse of God. And yet what they didn't understand was from God's perspective, he is dying under the curse of God. But doing so not for his own sins, but for the sins of those given to him by the Father. And in such, the Lord was submissive. This was the will of God to redeem mankind. And to that will of God, Christ was submissive. Verse number 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. It's a text that demonstrated, as we saw, the submissiveness of our Savior Lamb dying on our behalf on the cross. And yet, again, when you get to verse number 8, you see that from a human perspective, as you saw last time, he suffered great injustice at the hands of his generation. And again, he was taken from judgment. He was denied proper justice as those trumped-up charges were used to condemn him and place him upon the cross. And the rationale for all that is then emphasized again at the end of verse number 8. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And I pause there because verse number 9, I believe, then marks a change in tone for what's going to follow in the rest of the chapter. We're now coming to a turning point. He has indeed been uh, stricken for the sins of his people, but now there's a change. And the change comes about in virtue of the nature of his burial. And so it is in the gospel narratives presented to us in the New Testament. You go from the upper room and the the joyful, sorrowful scenes, and I, I use that language deliberately, uh, the fellowship of the saints, and yet the, the, the recognition of the Lord's uh, coming and the departure, and there's, there's that upper room scene, and then you go to Gethsemane, and Gabbatha, and Golgotha, you see a descending of the Lord into deeper levels of his humiliation. He is indeed afflicted for our sins, as the sin-bearer, And then two men come forward, rich men. Joseph particularly, assisted by Nicodemus. And they treat the body of our Lord with great dignity and honor. And he is given the burial of a man of honor, not the burial of a common criminal. The tone is turning. 
At the point of the burial, we have a change in tone in the gospel narrative from humiliation to exaltation and to glorification. We're seeing the, the tide is turning. It is finished. And now we're coming to see what's going to happen in the exaltation of the Savior. The sin bearing is finished. Darkness is lifted and the dawn of the Lord's day is coming. Things are changing. Jesus is honored. He is honored as the sinless Savior. The one who satisfies divine justice and who triumphs over the devil in his work. The resurrection is thereby certain. He made his grave with the wicked, with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. And yes, there'll be another insertion. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, but he shall prolong his days. Verse number 10. Resurrection is certain. As a common condemned criminal, his grave, verse number 9, was made. And that word means to set or assign. His grave was assigned with the wicked. But his grave was unlike anyone else crucified as he was. No one else goes from the cross to a rich man's grave. But Christ does. Christ is altogether unique, not only in his death, but in his burial. And he goes, he buried in a rich man's tomb that is also, as we know, a clean tomb. No death in that tomb before our Savior. And so we're seeing something of the turn of the events here regarding the necessity of the Lord's resurrection. And the burial marks that turn. And I want to point that out in, just in, in, two, in two thoughts of devotional doctrine for our attention this morning. First of all, the burial demonstrates that Jesus is a sinless substitute. We know all the elements of that. We know he's buried. We know he's a sinless substitute. But the burial itself demonstrates that point. He is buried with the rich in his death. And it says in our text, Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. There's a connection between his sinlessness and the nature of his burial. And therefore, his death again was not due to his own sin, but to our sin. Oh, it's a good time to reconsider or impeccable Jesus. He was without sin and he could do no sin. Pilate. Pilate found no fault with Jesus. We often look at that narrative and say, look at this, here's another demonstration of the sinlessness of Christ. But you know, in many ways, Pilate's standard is so, so much lower than God's standard. Yes, it's important that Pilate finds no fault. There was a, emphasizing again the lack of justice in the trial. There was no just cause for Pilate to put this man upon the cross, and yet he does so. But that text, while it implies the sinners of Christ, God's standard is far higher than Pilate's. And Christ meets that standard perfectly, as well as Pilate's. And we see in the words of, of the Apostle John, John, 1 John 3, verse 5, In him is no sin. That's a remarkable statement. It does not say he did no sin. It says in him is no sin. Christ is, as we understand it, our impeccable Savior. 
And again, there was debates historically regarding the nature of this doctrine. There were those who said, well, yes, Jesus did no sin. But the Orthodox theologians said, not only did Jesus do no sin, he could do no sin. He was not able to sin. He is our impeccable Savior. And we affirm that afresh today. Christ did no sin and could not do any sin. Again, the text before us here emphasizes that point. Because he had done no violence, neither any deceit in his mouth. This word violence speaks of hostility. It speaks in general terms of human iniquity in the word of God. Again, we think of violence so often as physical violence. The word is broader than that. It has this idea of all manner of hostility against man and against the will of God. It is in essence opposite to loving your neighbor. Violence is used regarding the world in Noah's day. The earth was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. The same word, but there is no violence in our Savior. And beyond that, 1 Peter 2 tells us, as it, quote, as it quotes Isaiah 53 verse 9, Peter says, Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. And this reference to guile and deceit in his mouth is not only referring again to the purity of our Lord's words. Now, that's important. Sins of speech are emphasized all the time in the Word of God, and we must have the highest standard of our speech. We must not succumb to, to any temptation to be, to be low in understanding of the importance of integrity of speech. But what's involved here is really highlighting the fact that Christ's heart is pure. The idea of the heart out of which the mouth speaks. And there's no deceit in his mouth. And the idea is that there's no lack of integrity in his heart. And so what you're seeing here is the true, total guiltlessness of the Savior. His true impeccable purity. Neither outward behavior nor inner person. There is no just charge to be leveled against our Savior. You turn across to Hebrews chapter 7, please. And you'll see that in the context there. Just one other reference in terms of proving uh, this point, Hebrews chapter 7. And again, significantly, this text also it connects the idea of the Lord's sinlessness with his resurrection. And, uh, Hebrews 7, verse 26 For such an high priest became us, his holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily, as was high priest of a sacrifice for his own sins, and then for the people, for this he did once when he offered up himself. So again, you see verse 27, he is not dying for his own sins. Verse 26, because he is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. The purity of our Savior underscores the purity of the sacrifice, but it also secures his resurrection. He is therefore the living high priest, verse 25. He ever liveth, death could not hold him, because death cannot hold a sinless man. Death has no grip in one who is not guilty of sin. And so when the sins imputed to him are dealt with on Calvary, there is no ground for death to hold him. He is the impeccable, sinless Christ. The price, the penalty of sin is paid for on the cross, but his purity guarantees his resurrection. And so it is 
necessarily true to emphasize again the impeccability of Christ Jesus taught for us again in our text here in Isaiah 53. He is the God-man. True union of our Lord's humanity with a pure divinity, deity. He is this true God and true man. These two natures and one person joined together. And it is not possible for that union to be marked by any potential defilement. He is the God-man. He is the one who comes to sacrifice for his sin. And he could not first sacrifice for his own sin to then pay the price for ours. Hence, he is our righteousness. He is our perfect righteousness. He is our example of perfect obedience. He is our sacrificial, spotless Lamb of God. And again, the burial demonstrates these truths. Sinless, but a willing, sin-bearing sacrifice. He said, I'm emphasizing to you again that the burial demonstrates Christ's sinlessness, demonstrates his sinless sacrifice. But note, this burial, as it is here in verse number 9, prophesied by God, this is coming in the purpose of God. What God prophesies is always according to what God has willed eternally, planned eternally. And thus, when Christ willingly, verse number 7, is oppressed and afflicted, we see one who is willing to undergo death and one who is willing to enter the grave. I don't know if you remember the language of our shorter catechism as it discusses Christ's humiliation. Wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? It says this, Christ's humiliation consisted in being born and that in a low condition. But we understand that the humility of Christ in his birth then it continues, made under the law. Again, an aspect of the one who made the law, coming willingly under the law, an aspect of Christ's humiliation, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross. All of these things we understand as part of Christ's humiliation. But then it continues, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. What love for the sinless Son of God to submit himself to death and burial for a time out of love for you and me. What glorious love. What condescension, the just dying for the unjust, the one who came to love us and loved us to the end. And so we're seeing here this burial it certainly demonstrates again for us Jesus as a sinless substitute and it provokes our love and devotion and worship again when we think about these things. But it's also the case that burial is a demonstration of a satisfactory substitute. Now here, young people, I need to be careful. When you make the word satisfactory, you may think of something that's just okay. Now, if something's satisfactory, it could be better, but it's okay. I'm not using the word in that way at all. When I refer to Christ's substitution as a satisfactory substitution, I'm referring to the fact that it was satisfactory to the Father. It secured the satisfaction of the Father. Not, could be better, but absolutely perfect sacrifice in the eyes of his Father. You see, the burial is here predicted by God. It is therefore ordained by God, and it is the Lord who assigns the men. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. And again, the language of verse number 9 has this idea of things that are assigned. 
And it is the will of God to bring public honor to his son after public humiliation. The Lord is humbled on the cross, but as the men come and take his body, there is public honor assigned to the Lord. And so the Lord has assigned the men and assigned the place. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. And again, the language there is indicating the place itself is assigned of God. And I've mentioned already, not only is it a rich man's grave, it is a clean grave, no defilement. Christ's body must not be defiled. He is a holy man. In the purest sense of that word, he is indeed altogether holy and his body is spared defilement because Christ's work is a holy work. His death is a night of obedience that pleased the Father. And so even in his death, there is no defilement of our Savior. His death is perfectly sufficient to satisfy the just of God and appease the wrath of God. Christ's work is pleasing to the Father. Hence, he is honored in his death and burial. Consider the battle you may have with assurance. You have sin in your mind and your heart, guilt rages in your soul. These are the ongoing and common experience of the child of God. How can the Lord accept me? I seem to take two steps forward, three steps back. I seem to make no progress in the things of God. How on earth can the Lord forgive me and accept me in heaven? Well, the body of Christ, placed in a clean place, assigned of God, is indication again that Christ's work is the ground of your peace. You yourself are not pleasing to the Father in yourself, but Christ is. His work is pleasing to the Father. He is the beloved Son in whom he is well pleased. And when you get to verse number 10 through 12, you'll come to see the success of the servant's work. He shall indeed prolong his days. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall indeed justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. We are here today to rejoice in and remember our Savior his perfect person, sinless substitute, and satisfactory sacrifice, whereby we can come in the presence of God today and say, yes, I am accepted in the beloved. Praise his name.